Hey everyone, it's Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We have a great show planned for you today. And then at 10 a.m., we are going to go to NPR coverage of the vote on impeachment on the House floor in Washington. So you're going to want to stay tuned to that. But we want to start the conversation today here. How much time do you spend on your phone each day? Does leaving the house without your smartphone sound like a daunting task, the kind of thing that would have you running around in circles all day? And in the age of social media and Amazon ordering, it can feel like we have all become beholden to these devices that fit in our hands but crowd out our brains and our social interactions. And for those looking to break the digital bond, it can feel like an overwhelming task. It can feel isolating socially, and it can feel even worse when you're missing all the info and news that scrolls constantly across our phones. In his book, Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World, Cal Newport addresses our dependency on social media and gives some practical advice for achieving some digital autonomy. Cal Newport, welcome to Detroit Today. Well, thanks for having me. So I I have to say up front that this is a conversation that seems quite personal to me. I think all of my colleagues here at the radio station and everyone in my personal life would describe me as perhaps the worst offender of a phone addiction. I am somebody who constantly has the phone in my hand. I'm constantly looking at it scrolling through all kinds of different things on it. I literally sleep with the phone plugged in next to my head. So I am looking forward to this conversation, not just because I think it'll be great for our listeners, but because I may get some personal tips from you about how to break that bond with my phone. But let's start here. Define digital minimalism for us. Well, so digital minimalism is a philosophy of technology use. That's probably the best way of thinking about it. And it says that the right way to approach all of these tools in your personal life is to start from what you actually care about, what you actually want to spend time doing, what's actually valuable to you, and then work backwards and say, how do I best deploy technology to amplify or support these things, as opposed to the opposite, which is if any app, device, or service offers me any possible benefit, then I might as well bring that into my life just in case. So uh, this idea of what, what, I, what we care about, for instance, let's start with, with that idea. One of the things that the phone and smartphones promise us is this idea of connectivity. It's this idea that we aren't alone in the world and that there are other people who share our interests, who share personal overlapping narratives with us, and that the phone is a way of sort of weaving all of those things together. And so if those are the things I care about, then why isn't the phone the right tool for those interactions? Well, so the minimalist would be much more specific about it. So let's say uh, it's important to you to use the Internet more generally to connect with people who, let's say, share interests you have that are rare enough that you're unlikely to find them, let's say, in your town or, or living nearby. That's a great use of, of the Internet. But the minimalist would say, now that you know that's important, you can ask what's the best way to use technology to support this. And now once you have a particular goal you're trying to accomplish, you can start to optimize. And you say, well, you know, there's really no reason why I need to be looking at Instagram on my phone for 90 minutes a day to support that. What I really want to do is maybe find the 
the key services I use to connect to people and maybe have some sort of schedule. I don't really need on my phone and maybe twice a week and maybe I check it on my desktop. Mm. You know, you're optimizing. How do I get this benefit that technology can really give me? Uh, in a way that minimizes the cost. So as soon as you're starting to look at particular goals and ask the key question, what's the best way to use technology to accomplish that goal? This cost-benefit ratio skews dramatically uh, in your advantage. Hmm. So in the first chapter of the book, you asked the question, how do we get into this mess in the first place? So to your point, how did we get to the point with social media and Amazon and all of these things that consume so much of our time on our phones, it does seem like if I go back 10 years even, uh, or maybe even five years, it wasn't nearly as much of a presence in our lives as it is now. How did we get to the point where everyone is literally walking around looking down at the screen that's in their hands? Well, it, it is a really interesting point that it is pretty new, that there was a time where we had smartphones and we had social media and we didn't look at the phones all the time. That constant companion behavior is itself something that's maybe seven years old. And this really comes from a big re-engineering that happened in the social media space between 2009 and 2012, around the time that these companies needed to get their revenue numbers up for some of the big IPOs that happened around that period. And there are two things that happened. One, social media applications became less about looking at people's feeds and more about incoming approval indicators, likes and retweets and photo auto tags and hearts and favorites. That made these services much more compulsively usable because now every time you hit on that icon on your phone, you could get a little bit of information about what other people were thinking about you. And as the founding president of Facebook, Sean Parker, admitted a couple of years ago, they were just hacking your brain the same way that they hack code. The other thing that happened is that the major social media platforms in this period switched over to these uh, timeline type feed mm -hmm. delivery of information where information would be pulled from many different feeds and places and, and put into one timeline. This led to the introduction of statistical algorithms to say, well, what, what information should we put into your timeline? let's study your behavior and have a statistical machine learning algorithm try to choose what you're going to look at longer or what you're more likely to click. That also completely transformed people's interaction with their phones because now your guaranteed content is going to press these sort of primal buttons that makes it very hard to resist. And mm -hmm. so we got these things for innocent reasons. We looked up a few days, a few years later, and we're looking at the phone all the time. And a lot of people are saying, well, that's not what I signed up for. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Uh, I, I want to talk about the end of the day and the way that we interact with the phone when we're going to bed and, and supposedly unplugging from the world. Many of us, like me, uh, take the phone essentially to bed with us. I mean, uh, the, the, there's not a whole lot of separation between me and the phone even when I'm sleeping. You think that's a, a key moment to, to be able to kind of interrupt this addiction that we have to the phones. Talk about what nighttime behavior maybe should look like. Well, buy an alarm clock is one of the bigger pieces of advice. You know, if you want to help someone's relationship <laughs> with their Don't use phone. the phone. <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't need a digital app on the sort of supercomputer in your pocket to, to ring a buzzer at a certain time. But I would go even further. More recently, a lot of my, my readers have adopted this strategy that we sometimes call the phone foyer method. 
But the basic idea is when you get home, so forget even bedtime, when you get home, you leave the phone by the front door. That when you're at home, the phone is not a constant companion. Now, hey, if you're expecting a call or an important text message, put the ringer on. If you need to look something up, that's fine. Go to the foyer or wherever you left the phone, look it up right there, and then come back to what you're doing. It's a simple idea, but just having those few hours when you're at home in the evening for the phone not to be your companion, that you're talking to your kids, you just talk to your kids. You're watching a show. You can't look up on IMDb, where do I know that person from? You just get used to life without this mediated overlay happening through a screen. And so a lot of my readers have been really excited about this idea recently because it's simple, but it gives you a, a large dose of peace and separation that people are otherwise missing. Mm. Um, my guest is Cal Newport. He's the author of Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World. And we are talking about the idea of being able to separate from the phone, this screen that is in your pocket that gives you access to a much broader world than it did even five or ten years ago. But then, of course, it draws you into that screen, and that means perhaps you're not interacting in the real world with other people as much as you should or with as much quality as you should. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us how you disengage with technology at the end of the day or whether you do? Do you have a hard time putting the phone away? Do you have a hard time not looking constantly at the screen, at social media, at the digital buying and ordering that's possible on the phone? Uh, do you have a hard time if you leave the phone somewhere and can't find it or don't have it? Is that something that you can't manage uh, during your day? Uh, do you have a screen-free Saturday or Sunday, uh, a weekend away from the phone as a way of breaking that bond? And if you're a parent of a child, how do you create boundaries around screen time? If you have a teen, is that even harder to do than if you have small children? In a little bit, we're going to talk with another person about children specifically and their media use and how you intervene in that at an early age. As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or go to Twitter, and uh, we will try to work your comments from there into our conversation. Let's start with Steve in West Bloomfield. Steve, what's on your mind? You there, Steve? Hello? Yeah, Steve, go ahead. Yes, I am. I'm trying to turn my volume off. Oh, uh, okay. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, I, I have a big problem with, with cell phone use. I use it for so many things that are both legitimate and illegitimate. Um, and I, I got one piece of advice, probably from my smartphone, and I tried it once, and it's the only thing that has ever worked. And I confess that I'm not doing right now, not, I'm not doing it right now, but that is to change the screen to black and white. Huh. It cuts the addictive impulse better than anything I've ever tried. And, you know, it makes the phone really ugly and less <laughs> desirable to look at. You can still get all the information you need. You can still answer the phone. You can still look stuff up. But it's like an old black and white TV. Right. Oh, Steve, that's a really interesting idea. I have not heard of that. And I have to confess I'm not sure I knew that the phone could even could even do that. Uh, Cal Newport, uh, talk about the the screen itself and the way that uh, the colors and the presentation on that screen 
feed into this addictive impulse that we have to keep looking at it over and over and over again? Well, one of the famous stories about the Facebook mobile app is that when the designers were building the first version, they had a palette of colors. These are the palettes that are the Facebook palette. It's grays and it's blues and it's some whites. And so the uh, notification that you have new Facebook notifications was in that palette. The attention engineers working at Facebook said, no, 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 forget the palette. That needs to be alarm red. We've looked at the research. This alarm red is going to create a much stronger emotional response in mm. the viewer when they, the, the user when they see it. Uh, so making your screen black and white can get over that. Uh, some people talk about how they arrange the icons on their screen. Though I suggest the, the most effective change you can make to your phone so that it doesn't grip your attention is to actually just take off it. Any application where someone makes money off your time and your attention when you tap on it. Almost everyone who has some legitimate reasons for why they use social media don't really have reasons why they need to use it on their phone. And so much more powerful than even changing your screen colors, just don't have Instagram on there. Just don't have Facebook on there. Use it on your computer if you need to use it, but people find that their compulsive phone use uh, drastically reduces once those apps are off there. Hmm. Uh, again, Steve, thanks very much for the call and that important tip, which, uh, again, I had not heard before. Let's go to Robert in Detroit. Robert, welcome to the show. Good morning, Stephen. Hey. Um, I just don't see the harm in it. I, I think I've tripled my knowledge on every subject that I ever was interested in in my life. Um, I buy everything. Uh, <laughs> why drive around looking for socks and paprika when you just order it in two seconds? You know, uh, I just don't see the harm in it. I quit buying expensive motorcycle magazines because I can get 20 opinions instead of one on a subject. I just don't see any drawback. Yeah. Well, Robert, I I, I absolutely appreciate that perspective. And uh, Cal Newport, I, I think what he's saying gets to a really important question about the future. So 30, 40 50 years from now, when people look back at this time and our explosive use of the phones and social media and buying on uh, online and, and things like that, will they think that our, our trepidation over our reliance on these things was kind of quaint and maybe naive because it's just a, a step forward in technology and that by the time... The, the middle of the century rolls around, there'll be, there'll be another technology that, that maybe moves this even further forward, and maybe it's in, imprinted on our eyes somehow or in our brains, and we don't even have to have a phone in our hands. I mean, is there an argument to be made that there isn't anything wrong with the way that we're doing this? It's just an evolution from the way we used to do the things that we're doing on the, on the phones. Well, I think there's two different things going on there. So the question of whether or not the Internet is good or bad is one that I think is definitively answered as good. And the Internet has the ability to, to find information, connect with people, express yourself in this new universal language is a phenomenal innovation uh, for humankind. So when I went out there to study why are people uneasy about their technology, this was the motivating question for my book, it was not about what they were doing on the internet, be it through their phone or their computers, right? It was not what I'm looking at when I'm looking at my phone is bad. It's not the information I'm getting is bad. The main issue people had 
is how much time they were spending doing it. It was the sense that they were looking at the phone more than they know is useful, more than they knew was healthy, to the detriment of things that they found more important. That's actually the crux of the problem. And this comes from a very narrow source. It's not that the Internet is bad or the ability to look at information online is bad or the ability to communicate with people digitally is bad. It's that there's a small number of apps and services that have engineered themselves to get us to use them way more than we want to, to turn these phones into constant companions that's diminishing the quality of our lives. So I think, of course, going forward, we're going to look back at the advent of the Internet as a Gutenberg-scale revolution. (laughs) We're also going to look back at this idea that we look at TikTok and Instagram and Facebook once every four minutes throughout our day uh, as something that was quaint, was an adjustment, was trying to figure out what type of services do we like, what type of services we don't, what's the best way to introduce this technology into our lives. So it's not, is the Internet good or bad? It is our current usage pattern, this constant companion, always looking at the phone, the way we want to interact with this technology going forward. Mm. Uh, Again, thanks very much, Robert, for the call uh, and the insights. Let's go to Malaka in Detroit. Malaka, welcome to the show. Hi, how's it going? Good, how are you? Good. Um, So I just wanted to share, I actually got rid of Instagram on my phone about six months ago um, in an effort to try to kind of alleviate some of the social anxieties that I was having. And I haven't put it back on, and it's made an incredible daily difference in my life. And also even amongst just kind of the relationships with my friends, um, so easy. You can just kind of communicate via Instagram, DM, and you kind of lose that personal uh, relationship a little bit. And I've noticed a huge difference since I've kind of made that cutoff of being on there. People actually have to reach out. People have to genuinely try to make plans with you. Right. So you said something there, Malaka, that I want you to, to follow up on a bit. <clears throat> Social anxieties. What, what was that? What, what, what was that like? What, what, what was going on that was making you anxious about Instagram? Um, well, I'm part of the millennial generation, and it sounds like possibly the other callers were maybe a little bit older, so might not be something that they uh, experienced quite so much, but growing up with the internet and growing up with so much of our uh, interaction being online and social media from MySpace to Facebook to Instagram, mm-hmm. it creates a, uh, what are they doing that I'm not? I'm at home. I'm missing out on something. It's oh. the old age FOMO, if you will, uh, right. kind of case. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and you feel like you don't have that now because you don't have Instagram. Right. I'm not aware. So I can't be, I can't really, uh, you can't be anxious about something that you're not aware of. You can't feel like you're missing out on something that you don't know that's going on. Mm-hmm. Malaka, that is really fascinating. I'm glad you called uh, and shared that. Uh, Cal Newport, it seems to me that this is the very point of social media. The designers of social media want you to feel as though you're missing out if you're not on it. And maybe Malaka's right that the way to, to, to respond to that is just to withdraw. Well, we shouldn't be surprised that these these social media technologies create interpersonal or social issues because essentially you're taking something that is deeply embedded into our our human makeup, deeply embedded into the sort of evolutionary history of our brain, which is social interactions. We're primarily a social species. There's large portions of our brain dedicated to mediating social reactions. If you take something that's so fundamental to us, and then start messing around with it, with new technologies and ways of interacting that didn't exist until, you know, 10 minutes ago. 
we shouldn't be surprised that it creates lots of these issues. Just like when we started messing around with food in the, the mid 20th century and inventing, you know, Doritos and these highly palatable fast foods, <laughs> people got really unhealthy and sick. It's because you took these deep drives and systems that had evolved over hundreds of thousands of years and said, let's throw in some technology and mess around with it. You can get powerful results, such as a company like Facebook being worth all these billions of dollars, but on the same time, you get results like you hear from the caller, which is our social brain does not know what to do with this type of weird, low friction, high visual, kind of personal, kind of not interaction with quantitative rankings that basically fries the systems. I mean, we allowed some some kids in, in dorm rooms and around incubators in Silicon Valley to take one of the most ancient aspects of the human interaction and say, let's mess around with it and see what happens. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to keep Cal Newport with us talking about digital minimalism. And we're going to bring in another expert who specializes in kids and tech. And we want to hear from you. What do you do about your kids, your teenagers, and the phones that they have in their pockets and constantly in their hands? Have you found ways to intervene in that budding addiction? Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. Bernadette and Redford, Kimberly and Fenton, Ralph and Dearborn will get to you next as well. Stay with us on Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. My guest is Cal Newport. He's the author of Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World. And I want to welcome someone else to the conversation about the idea of putting the phone down, looking away from the screen. Sarah Donoff, Domoff is a clinical child psychologist and an expert on children's media use and problematic media use in adolescence. She's also the director of the Family Health Lab at Central Michigan University. Sarah, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's talk about young kids first Mm -hmm. and then work our way up to teenagers. How is tech affecting young kids? It's not uncommon to see toddlers holding tablets in their strollers or playing on a parent's smartphone. It seems that swiping is one of the first kinds of uh, physical actions that kids learn these days. Is that healthy and is it affecting their brain development in in a way that maybe, I don't know, we should be concerned about? Well, I'm so glad you asked it in in terms of the context of the child's age, because a lot of what we recommend and what we know really depends on the stage of development of the child. Um, Across the across childhood, really, we want to consider what the child is exposed to. So we want to consider the content um, as well as the context of use. So when are they using screen media as well as how are they using it? And could it become problematic? And so in all of those domains, we we consider the child's age. And what they may be missing out on as indicating that there could be a problem or it could interfere with with brain development in the sense of is their time spent on screen media, on tablets, taking away from time where they could be playing with real objects in real life Hmm. or communicating with their parents or making eye contact with their caregivers. So there's a variety of ways that we kind of 
contextualize how uh, screen media may be positive or negative. And it's really nuanced. And I, I really liked how um, the conversation was about going beyond just number of hours. But what does it look like? How are you using it? And how is it getting in the way of other things that you want your, your child to accomplish or succeed at? Mm. So as kids get older, of course, there is peer pressure and safety concerns for parents. So some kids are getting smartphones as early as second or third grade. Mm -hmm. Uh, How do you set limits on the phone once you give in to the idea that your child should have one? Yeah, so I highly recommend if you can, before giving the child a smartphone, to do like a family media plan or agreement um, where you go over what are some of the ground rules for use. But really importantly, and this is where I think sometimes the conversation gets lost, is how will you talk to your child and how will will your child contact you or talk to you when something bad happens on their phone, whether it be through social media or through contacts with someone who they may not know? So what is the game plan for a variety of situations that are, you know, very scary for for children and parents to think about happen on social media. How do we how will we address this? What will be the consequences? Because for a lot of youth, it's well, I don't want to tell my parents that this happened because I don't want to lose access to my my peers to my, my it's a really a huge social outlet for um, for youth. And so kind of coming up with a, a game plan and ground rules for, you know, what do we do when things may go wrong? Like, how will we know if your phone use is getting in the way of of school, of your academics, of your interactions with other people in your sleep? And kind of kind of setting that framework um, as contingent on getting a phone is, I think, a great first step. Once a child has a smartphone, I would recommend continually having conversations about how is it impacting you? Are you happy with the relationship you have with technology? And importantly for parents and adults and other caregivers in, in children's lives, we have to model um, the type of behavior we want our chi- our children to emulate. So that's often a really huge challenge because so much of um, obviously what you've discussed so far on the show is everything, whether it be employment, um, connections with friends, family is so embedded in uh, technology now that it's kind of hard for for everyone in the family to have a balance. So sometimes it turns into let's come up with a, a media plan for the family. What do we want to see different and how how will each family member adhere to this plan? And um, you know, I focus a lot on children and adolescents, but um, parents, too, also express, like, how do I um, put the phone down as well? And how do I model healthy use when so much of um, societal expectations are you have to be always available? Um, you have to always be able to respond or something's wrong. So um, I think those are some some really key um kind of topics of conversation I highly recommend that that parents and other caregivers have with children. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to go to Bernadette in Redford. Uh, she's got a comment uh, that is really focused on exactly what you're talking about here, Sarah. Bernadette, uh, go ahead. Good morning, Stephen. Hmm. I'm a boomer, and I treated my 19-year-old niece to a trip to the Dominican Republic with me. It was the first time she had a passport and the first time she was on a plane. We did a lot of Airbnbs, and she insisted that they have Wi-Fi. She spent more time (laughs) talking to her boyfriend and friends back home in an air-conditioned room than she did bonding with her aunt. Oh, no. sleep with her phone, and accidentally, I was charged roaming charges, $1,200 for a phone that didn't work for me to make local calls once I was there. Oh, my goodness. Bernadette, that is a terrible story. (laughs) Uh, I'm sorry that uh, that you had that experience. Uh, Sarah, 
I think this is an example of the opposite, I guess, of what you're talking about, where you're saying there should be a plan before you sort of indulge this idea of the phone, and that way there aren't these these disconnects between uh, family members. Right, totally. And I, I, I also think um, kind of thinking outside the box in terms of how to make changes with uh, children or, or teens' screen time will require um, adults coming together and coming up with plans for children in their, um, you know, in the classroom or in their community. Because I think a lot of the the challenges that I hear from parents is like, well, I if I take away this this phone, if I take away access to um, mobile gaming, then then my kids will not um, be able to talk about content that their peers are talking about, or that's how they connect with their friends after school. And so what I found is that when we have parents coming together of, you know, parents of children in the same friend group and saying, hey, let's kind of coordinate when we want them to engage or interact with each other online after school so that there's some consistency and um, similar ground rules, that can be really helpful. Um, because if you have, for example, a child who can, can game late into the night and that's how he or she is connecting with peers, um, but then you have another child whose parents are like, nope, we turn off the phones at this time, that can create some conflict. And so I think for several of these, um, these issues that have come up around social media use and smartphone use, in children, um, we have to take a, a, a more macro kind of approach to addressing it. Um, obviously, there are steps that can be taken to improve media use in the household, but so much of this is socially embedded. And so it's really a tricky balance where multiple players have to come together to agree upon how do we want this to look for our children. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cal, I wonder, I wonder what you make of the generational disconnect that I think Bernadette is referring to there that she's a boomer and she traveled with a 19-year-old member of another generation and they just had different expectations it sounds like about the way that the phone ought to play a role in their in their travels. Well, you know one of the things I sense is I get when I talk to parents or psychologists or even neuroscientists who are dealing with this issue is that there's really a a sense of catch up Okay, wait a second. We have to we have to catch up with these changes that happen, and we we forget that really widespread phone or social media use among let's say teenagers is at most six years old. So this is a a brand new culture that everyone's trying to catch up to and say, okay, what do we actually want to do here? Mm-hmm. And my sort of bolder prediction, and I, I, I like I can be bolder because I don't actually formally study like Sarah does uh, children and phone use. So I can I, let me let me take some liberties here. Um, my prediction is okay. We've we've gone through this first half-decade period of essentially allowing unrestricted use of these phones and services among young people because it was new and we just didn't know what was going on, I think it's going to significantly change. Hmm. I mean, I predict 10 years from now, for example, the way our culture thinks it's appropriate for, let's say, a 13- or 14-year-old to engage with these services is going to look different than it is right now, which was basically, let's just try it out and see what happens. The, The sense coming back from almost everyone, educators, parents, to kids themselves is, this current world in which I have unrestricted access to these uh, highly appealing socially exploitative apps isn't working for anyone. No one's happy about it. Even the teens, they feel obligated to be on these things often, and they're unhappy about it as well. I can't can't, uh, imagine that we're not going to see some relatively major cultural changes as we catch up to, Mm. whoa, what just happened, and do we like this? Wow. 
Wow. Uh, my guests are Cal Newport, the author of Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World, and Sarah Damoff, who is a clinical child psychologist, an expert on children's media use and problematic media use in adolescence. She's also the director of the Family Health Lab at Central Michigan University. We're talking about the phones that are in our pockets and so often in our hands and grabbing our attention with social media, with buying, with all of the things that the Internet makes possible on these very powerful tools that we carry with us everywhere. Is it too much? Are we uh, too connected to the phone and not connected enough to the world around us? Is the phone keeping us from real relationships that would be more fruitful and substantive than the things that we have come to value so much in terms of social media and other interactions on the phone. As always, we want you to join the conversation. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there, and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's go to Ryan in Livonia. Ryan, what's on your mind? Hey, Stephen. Thanks hey. for taking my call. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I'm, uh, first of all, I'm calling from a flip phone. So uh, wow. that wow. gives you any indication of <laughs> my views. <laughs> we actually got rid of our smartphones in 2017. Um, and a big reason for that was our kids are growing up. I have six kids from the age 12 to you know, almost a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just wanted to be like a model to them. Like, you don't need this. Um you know, you can live without it. Mm. And, you know, that'd be hard if we still had them. So yeah. <laughs> we got rid of ours and it's been a huge blessing. Um, you know, less distractions. Um, me and my wife are more engaged with the kids and they're more engaged with us. And, you know, I, I just wanted to share that because like that's when she was talking, your guest was talking about the media plans. Like we talk to our kids constantly about why why we choose not to have a smartphone in our pocket mm-hmm. um you know the dangers of the internet like you know having everything at your fingertips 24 7 yeah so, um, so ryan i i wonder yeah. if you can talk about the decision that you made to go back to a flip phone and 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 go back to what your usage was like when you had a smartphone did you did you feel like it was just too much? I mean, did you feel like you couldn't control the the usage if you had the phone? Yeah, it's, I mean, when you have the phone, you don't realize how often you're on it. Um, and especially, like, at home in the evening when I'm home from work, uh, you know, constantly checking the phone, uh, not paying attention to the kids. And it just got to a point where, you know, we were, we just felt like we were on it too much. Yeah. Uh, we didn't want to set that example for our kids as they got older. Um, huh. And so we, we made the choice and, and now like I, I'm more aware of everyone else, <laughs> you know, like walking around looking down <laughs> all the time and, <laughs> And it's just a different perspective of life. Yeah. yeah. Ryan, I really appreciate the call and the, and the perspective there. Cal Newport, this is not exactly what you're 
proposing, I think, in your book. You're saying that there is a way to be minimally involved with the phone, but the idea of abstinence, I guess, or, or just walking away from, from the phone, it's, it's, another, it's another way, I guess, to control this, this addiction. Well, the community of people who use these so-called feature phones was much larger than I thought. You know, I came across this. They don't always talk about it because they're a little bit sometimes self-conscious, but there's a huge community of people who have taken a similar step. But one piece of advice, this is a challenge I gave to my students at Georgetown for the, this current week, which is the study period at Georgetown. And I'll, I'll extend this challenge to sort of anyone who's listening. Take one week and follow the, these rules with your smartphone. Uh, you use it for calls, text, maps, and audio. Basically, the original features that Steve the Jobs... things that we had, right. Yeah, the original pitch. Don't look up information on it. Don't go social media on it. Don't stream any video on it. Do that on your, your laptop or desktop. Just do that for one week. Commit to it for one week, and, and you'll get a, a taste of what life is like. It doesn't mean that needs to be permanent, but getting that taste of what life is like when the phone goes back to being what Jobs pitched it as. A really fantastic phone, a great iPod, <laughs> a good way to listen to the podcast with a beautiful map when you're lost, and then otherwise it's just not in your hand. Even one week of that will open to you a, a memory of what life was like before and maybe will help spark some changes. Hmm. Uh, uh, Sarah, I wonder if you can talk about the idea of just not giving cell for smartphones to children mm -hmm. just saying we're not we're not going to even go down that road yeah so cal's suggestion um i think is is a great one um and i highly encourage parents to try these experiments out with their children so what happens if we we put away our phones for a couple days what what's different what do you notice um about your environment that maybe you didn't notice before um i definitely um concur with the the caller I think a lot of parents are concerned about not being able to reach their children um, when they're at school. Um, there's a lot of fear of, um, you know, school shootings or things happening at school that parents want to be able to reach their children easily. And they can do that with non-smartphones. They can do that with our older school phones um, that don't have access to the Internet. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's one thing that I would recommend if parents want to be in touch but they don't want to give their child access to the whole entire world unfettered um, in, uh, with a smartphone. So I, I definitely recommend that. Um, there are some organizations that kind of build um, cohesion around parents to have them wait until um, eighth grade, for example, before giving your child a smartphone. Um, I really think it's critical, though, if, if, if a child is going to have access to a smartphone that they're really, um, parents are aware of what they're consuming, um, what privacy settings they have, um, to do some research on um, uh, parental controls. Um, and there's so many resources online, actually, that will help parents um, set privacy um, um, guidelines for um, their children as well as uh, block access to certain content. Um, so there are youth that can use smartphones in ways that are not um, counterproductive. Um, but again, there's so many individual factors and family factors that every family has to consider in terms of, is my child ready for this? Um, will they communicate with me if something goes wrong? Um, and do, you know, do I trust my child to communicate effectively and appropriately with people online? And really for a lot of youth, that may be delaying that further into adolescence or really building into school curricula or um, community programming, how to use social media in ways that is, um, you know, 
appropriate adaptive versus maladaptive and how will we handle conflict as it arises on social media. So I think it's important. There are important skills for children and adolescents to learn. Um, but again, so much of the kind of scaffolding of this learning comes from the adults, um, the teachers, uh, the community members in children's lives to kind of show them um, how they can be like responsible users of technology. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue our conversation about the smartphones that are in our pockets and in our hands. And we want to continue to hear from you, Mike and Berkeley, Phyllis and Warren, Bashar and Oak Park. We will get to you next as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined. My guests are Cal Newport, author of Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World, and Sarah Domoff, who is a clinical child psychologist and an expert on children's media use and problematic media use in adolescence. She's also the director of the Family Health Lab at Central Michigan University. We're talking about our phones, our cell phones, our smartphones, and how much we use them and how much they might be distracting us from other things, real interactions that we can have with people in the world. As always, we want to hear from you. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You could also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, let's go to Phyllis in Warren. Phyllis, welcome Hi, to the show. Stephen. Hi, Stephen. Hi, guys. I, I really enjoy the conversation, but I have only one comment to make, okay. and that is stop using the word smartphone. It's not a phone. It's a computer. You're walking around with a little computer, and that is what you're doing. I am old enough to remember when there were party lines, and when you picked up the phone, <laughs> someone else was maybe talking was, on the Was line. on it? <laughs> yes. And so you'd say, i got to make a call. i got to make a call. I mean, this was the worst, and now this is terrible. But I appreciate your guests. I like their their definitions, and I especially <laughs> approve of Brian. And I like the idea of a flip phone. I'm calling you on a landline. On a landline. There you go. <laughs> I mean, talk about primitive. I mean, <laughs> Phil, as I... Rate, the, the term, please, is computer, a little computer. I, I think that's a really interesting point, Phyllis, and, and there's no question that they these are... Are computers, and they are by some standards supercomputers. I mean, if you think of the the technology that, for instance, was in play when we went to the moon, compared to what's in our pockets right now, I mean, there is no no similarity between those two. I I wonder, Cal Newport, if you can sort of address that idea of though as it of of the phone as computer, which I think puts it in a different category, right? It 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 makes it makes all of this seem a little more utilitarian as opposed to indulgent, perhaps. Well, you know, the, the novelist Dave Edgar had, had this funny point he made in an interview recently where he said, you know, imagine 20 years ago if you were teaching a college class and a student came in with a giant cart 
and, you know, set up a TV screen on his desk and then brought in a video game Atari and set that up and then brought a, brought a phone over and put that next to him and then had a whole stack of magazines and books and put this all out in front of him on his desk and said, okay, I'm ready for class. <laughs> like, that's ridiculous, but it's actually functionally the same thing as having your smartphone right there on the desk in front of you. Um, but I, I, so I agree, it, it is a computer, and I like the idea of utilitarian as being the right way to think about it. I mean, this is essentially branding and marketing that makes us feel that this is a, a ticket to the exuberant future of innovation and connection. Now, it's, it's a computer. Uh, you can put computers to use for specific things. That's their point. You have particular goals they can help you accomplish. And if you think about it in that utilitarian way, I am deploying this machine to solve X, Y, and Z, as opposed to this is a companion. This is a portal through which I mediate the world. All of that, I think, is of the moment sort of branding nonsense. It's a computer. You have some programs to run to solve some problems. Great. It makes your life better. It's not your friend. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, let's go to Bashar in Oak Park, who has a specific question for Sarah. Bashar, go ahead. Hi, yeah, uh, for Sarah, I read a CNN article recently that said that suicide rates among adolescent girls, especially 10 to 14, are increasing dramatically. I think for most people, that's the age in their life when they're most self-conscious. So I'm wondering if you know of any studies that uh, show links between that and social media use. Hmm. Uh, Bashar, great question. Sarah Damoff, go ahead. So there's definitely correlational research out there, meaning that people have looked at how does increased amounts of social media use associate with trends that we're seeing in um, uh, suicide attempts. Um, However, I I do want to caution the listeners that just because we see an association does not mean that one causes the other. And I think there are a lot of mechanisms or ways in which um, how we use technology may impact um, our mental health or may exacerbate certain types of mental health symptoms. Um, but it's very complicated. And one of the most um, supported links is the link between using y- your phones at night or being on social media at night and having it disrupt sleep. And we know that sleep is so critical for adolescent health and development and for, for, all, of our, for all of our functioning. Um, and the research has, has supported that excessive use of screen media and its impact on sleep may be one of the ways in which um, our, our smartphone use or our social media use may impact um, mental health concerns such as suicidal ideation. Mm. However, it's very nuanced and it's, it's complex. And um, there are a variety of factors, for example, that we consider at the, the clinic I have here at CMU. We help children and families who have had conflicts um, online with social media, and there's oftentimes um, other factors at play that we want to address. So it's not solely due to you know one thing or this 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 change, um, but a, a multitude of factors. And so it's it's kind of complex, and um, we definitely want more research out there um, examining those links and maybe how can we use social media um, for vulnerable youth in positive ways, maybe for the youth who feel isolated. Are there ways that we can connect them to peers, maybe outside of their community, people that are um, that they can relate to in healthy ways um, that may buffer some of the the impacts of um, loneliness or isolation on on youth? And I think it gets to <clears throat> this point that you're making about the importance of parental involvement in mm-hmm. the, in, in the way that teens, in particular get to use smartphones, that, that even, even if you decide that that is a world you want your child to, to experience and live in, 
talking about how to to do that, how often to do it, really could have an effect on the the well uh, the the impact that it could have on on that child. Exactly, and I think um, I really um, am encouraged by development of certain programs that we can implement in schools to help um, youth identify how do they want to engage with social media, what do they want their their digital brand, if you will, to look like, um, privacy concerns, and then also how do you solve problems that arise um, on social media? Like how do you problem solve? Um, we teach children how to solve problems with their peers in real life, but um, we also need to tailor the information to how do you interact with peers effectively on social media? How do you determine what you want to share and with whom? Um, and I think that's a whole other skill set that um, youth um, need to learn um, in this digital age. Hmm. Uh, again, thanks very much, Bashar, for the call and the question. Uh, let's go to Jimmy in Birmingham. Jimmy, I've got a little bit of time left, uh, but but I wanted to get you in here. Yeah, hey, thanks for taking my call, Stephen. Uh-huh. Go ahead. Um, so there's a famous uh, PhD, uh, a woman with a PhD in social work and a researcher. Her name is Brene Brown, and she talks extensively about human connection and specifically ways that we avoid vulnerability in this you know, vulnerability is inevitable in life, and it's inevitable in our human interactions, and, and it is required for human connection. Unfortunately, these iPhones and these Android devices have uh, enabled us to avoid vulnerability, therefore huh. um, uh, basically prohibiting us from connecting with one another. And so on a very psychological scale, uh, we use these devices to, to avoid vulnerability, whether it's vulnerability within ourselves or vulnerability that's required for us to connect with others. Wow. And so um, it's, just a, it's just been a great way for me to remember that if I really value human connection, I don't need better habits. I just need to understand that the only way I can connect with people is through vulnerability. But that is impossible to do through when I'm staring wow. at a screen. Yeah, Jimmy, that's a that's a really great point. Uh, Cal Newport, we've only got a minute left, but I want to have you respond to what Jimmy's talking about. Well, it, it speaks to a bigger point, which is, you know, human interaction is incredibly rich, and it does have aspects like vulnerability. Uh, it also has aspects like sacrificing your own time and attention on behalf of someone else, and it's, it's a rich part of the human experience. What we do on a screen when we just send ASCII characters back and forth on a glowing piece of glass, our brain does not recognize that as being at all the same thing as the human interaction that we crave as a species. Hmm. Okay, Cal Newport, author of Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World. It was great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. My pleasure. Also, Sarah Domoff, clinical child psychologist and expert on children's media use and problematic media use in adolescence, director of the Family Health Lab at Central Michigan. Great to have you here, too. Thanks for having me. Okay. Uh, Stay tuned to NPR's coverage of the House impeachment vote in Washington, D.C. That is coming up at 10 o'clock. Come back on Monday for more Detroit Today when we're going to hear from DTE President and CEO Trevor Lauer about how resilient the grid is as we head into the coldest months of the year. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again next week.